Hello and welcome to another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thank you so much for listening. This is where I have conversations with people who are living life on their own terms. We dive into those big moments that have pushed them through the fears and self-limiting beliefs that hold so many of us back. Now, simplifying your own life is one thing, but we all know things start getting interesting and challenging when we bring our kids and family into the equation. Well, today I chat with Danae Barahona about all things to simplify your family. As a clinical social worker with a specialty in child and family practice and a PhD in child development, Danae is also the voice behind the information-packed website, simplefamilies.com. We dive into many topics in this episode as Danae and I talk about simplifying your family in terms of clutter, letting go of difficult items, Danae's brilliant toy detox program and the difference between open and closed toys. That was a a really interesting one for me because I hadn't looked at toys like that as opened and closed and also not over scheduling our lives and our children's lives. We also chat about how kids learn from their parents, positive discipline in the household, and the first-then principle. This was a a great little tip, and it works wonders for me. I've been testing it over the last couple of weeks, and uh, it's been brilliant, a bit of a game-changer. Also, building confidence in our kids by stepping back and not hovering. And one of my favorites, family mealtime. If you have difficulties with food and your little one's not eating, you might want to try how Danae feeds her children. Danae is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to simplifying your family, and I've linked to stacks of things in the show notes over at liveimmediately.com. And this episode is full of great tips and ideas, touching on many different topics. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Danae Barahona. Hi, Danae. How are you? I'm good, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. You're more than welcome. And whereabouts in this beautiful world do I find you today? Well, today I'm a little, it's a little out of the ordinary. I am actually at my parents' house in Ohio in the U.S. Um, We're actually in the midst of a big move. We had been living, my family and I had been living in Dallas, Texas for the past five years. And we're en route to a new home just outside New York City. So big changes coming. We're moving. Our big move will be next week officially. Oh, lovely. And I heard, I, I, I can't even pronounce it. I hire. I didn't even pronounce it that right. Can you please say it for me again? Sure. It's Ohio. 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 It's actually in, yeah. the, in in pretty much in the in the middle of the United States. There, I'm pretty sure I drove through it when we were traveling from Breckenridge, Colorado, over to Providence, Rhode Island. Yes, you absolutely did drive through it then, and you might not even have noticed. It's a pretty quiet little state. <laughs> and so what's making you do the big move from uh, Dallas up to New York? So my husband actually just took a job. He works for PepsiCo, and he took a job on their sustainability team working to help make the products healthier for all of us. So he's really excited about it, and he he started a couple of weeks ago. So that is in, just outside the city in New York. 
So that is what's taking us there. And we'll be happier to be close to family. So it's, it's going to be a good change for us. A oh, big change, but a good one. Oh, that's beautiful. We actually spent some time in upstate New York last year in a beautiful little town called Canaan, which um, I think that if we could somehow like make the world's really small or create a, uh, a plane that took only maybe an hour to travel, I think my wife and I would, would have a house up there because it is such a beautiful part of the world. Oh, we're going to have to check it out. I'm looking forward to that. But um, like most parents, you wear many hats and you also run the website and podcast titled Simple Families. And I've been really excited to chat to you today as simplifying our own life is one thing. But when we bring in that family dynamic into the picture, it's a whole nother kettle of fish. So has parenthood and managing your family always been simple for you or or were they things that you had to learn along the way? No, I wouldn't say that it's always been simple. And my personality type has always been one to overcomplicate things. And I've always had a life lifelong attraction to clutter and stuff. So this, I would say my attraction to simple living and minimalism really started around the time that I became a mother. And I was really attracted to it because I knew that this the 30 plus years prior to having my first child that the extra stress and the stuff that I carried around with me, I didn't want to pass on to my son. I knew that I wanted to make our lives simpler and I knew that I wanted to make his life one that was not just clutter-free, but was lighter, lighter in stress and much more calm. And that's something that I've really tried to bring to Simple Families is this is how to go about finding calm in your family and really what the value of calm is. Because in a day and age when there are so many, so many different things we can be doing with our kids, whether it's activities or schools or experiences, what is the value of really slowing down and giving our kids calm? And it really is such a gift. Uh, most definitely. And it, it's really interesting that you say that you didn't want to kind of pass on all of that stress to to your little boy when he was coming along. Because I think sometimes we forget that when our lives are busy, without us knowing it, we do kind of pass on that franticness to our children. We absolutely do. And it's funny, if I'm, everyone, everyone's heard the expression that kids are little sponges. And usually when it, I've heard it in reference to kids using a bad word or profanity or that kind of things, like kids are little sponges, they're going to say everything that you say. But it's also true in other aspects. They are going to act the way that you're acting. They're going to pick up on your stress and on your attitude. And everything that you bring is impacting them all the time. We try to teach our kids things purposefully. Um, but it's the things we teach them not mm. so on purpose that often stick with them the most. I, th- I think I think you hit the nail on the head there uh, on the head there too because often oh, well I shouldn't say I shouldn't speak for everybody in the world I'll speak for myself here when I'm I guess being deliberate with teaching my daughter Andy something that's one thing but I completely forget that when she's around me and I'm not necessarily teaching her something she's still learning from me. Exactly. And that's called incidental learning. She's just learning naturally through their environment. And that's what research tells us. That's the way that kids learn best rather than this whole sit down and let's sit down and teach our kids how to be Mm. kind. Like that just, that doesn't work. I mean, sure we can, you know, I read all these blog posts about how to raise kind kids and there's all these bullet points and boxes to check, 
But when it comes down to it, when we want to teach our kid a core value like that, we have to model it because that's where they're going to learn it is they're going to learn it from us. Mm. And and that's not always an easy road. Do you know what I mean? Because it's a continuous road. There's no, yes. there's no end to that learning. And we're imperfect, obviously. So we, the model that we are for our children is never going to be exactly what we would want it to be, but it's real. And they're going to learn from us, from our mistakes and from our successes. And when you look at that notion of, of a simple family, what are the key elements in that for you? I think it's really scaling back. And I talk a lot with my audience about how we need to do less of so much. We need Not only do we need to schedule our kids less and have them involved in less planned activities. I actually sort of became aware of that. An example of that from this week is I'm visiting my parents and I took my daughter who's 15 month old to a park that I went to a lot when I was growing up. And I've been back to this park with my kids since, since they were born. So I've taken them there before and there's usually special events going on. Like there's a parade or a carnival or whatever going on at the park. And we've been there a few times, but when I took her back last week, we just went on a regular day and there was nothing going on. And we hung out at the beach for a little while. And then we walked up this hill or these some rocks that I used to play on. And it was a really special day. And it was a day of nothing. And it just really struck me that, you know, I've been to this park a lot, but I never really felt as connected to it as I did on a day when I went to do nothing. <laughs> but it, it's, so, it's, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, what, but when you you spoke there about um, not scheduling things and kind of pairing things back, I think on the flip side of that, and, and maybe this is where a lot of parents struggle, they they want to give their kids everything. They don't want their kids to kind of miss out on on anything, so they kind of throw everything at them. But then their the kids are kind of like holding so much, and they don't have time to be kids and and do nothing, as you kind of suggested. Yeah. And I think as adults, we've become so accustomed to going, going and doing, doing all the time that we have lost the value of understanding what it is to do nothing. And it's sort of like, you know, usually we would go to a park and be like, okay, what are we going to do? We played on the playground. We sat on the beach, check, check all the boxes. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on. What are we doing next? So just really allowing ourselves to stop and just be like, Hey, this is a day where we're not doing anything and just seeing where the day takes us, I mm. think is just, it's such an incredible experience when we just stop and do that, when we have nothing going on. No, I couldn't agree more. But what was some of the things that you did, like the practical things that you did to simplify your family? So practically speaking, I did a lot in my home. And I've always been one to hold on to things because I thought I was going to need them in the future. Um, and I know that that is a lot of families. And when my son was born, I did, I did a regular baby registry. Do you all have ba baby yeah. registries, Mike? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it, we registered for all the typical stuff. And I got all this baby stuff and realized that, in fact, it was a lot of stuff. And we lived in a small house. And before the baby was even born, I felt like I was already being overrun with kid stuff. So I started to feel that itch really early on that I needed to prioritize what was important to us. And if I, if, if I was ever going to raise a kid who could prioritize what was important to him, I needed to first prioritize what was important to me. 
And I started with some simple things and I started with my closet. That was the biggest change for me. I went through and I pulled everything out of my closet, got rid of 90% of it. And it just completely changed my world. The fact that I was like, wow, like I want to hang out in my closet. Like this is such a enjoyable place to be without all the stuff in it. Um, I think just that I took that feeling, that happy feeling I felt being in a clean, clutter-free space and I took it and applied it to all the other areas in our home where I felt the same way. I think once you get a taste of that simple area in your home that you can really, it, it makes you crave it mm. in other areas. Have you have you had that experience, uh, Mike? Mo- most definitely. We went through a um, a purging process where we we played the men's game, and uh, which is where you you either donate or purge one item on the first day, two items on the second day, three items on the third day and so forth for 30 days. And so my wife Ingrid and I did that over a month and, and found uh, just how much mental space we, we got from clearing out the physical space. And then after that, we just kind of went through our, ho- our entire home and ended up purging over about 70% of our belongings to the point that when we went overseas and we were renting out our home fully furnished and we had packed up some of our items in Inga's studio. And when we came back from our trip for a year, uh, after a year, our home obviously was livable. And so all the things that we had in Inga's studio, we were like, do we really need, need this stuff? Obviously you don't need it to live in the house because the people were living in our house without it. Do we, we lived without this stuff for a year. Do we need this? And we kept some artwork and things like that, but everything else we, we purged as well. So from kind of the start to the end, it was like over 80% of our belongings and it has really just been so calming. And I was talking to a friend the other day and he's like, Oh, what have you been up to today? And I said, Oh, I was just going through my wardrobe and purging some more things. And he's like, do you have anything left? Like <laughs> you couldn't have, I like, get that question all the time, but you get to that point and it's, and you start to realize, and you, you talk about things that you were holding on to, like literally two days ago, I put two pairs of cowboy boots like ankle cowboy boots that I had, I think I actually got one of them, one pair in New York when we were in there in 2009. And I used to wear these, these boots everywhere with jeans. I love them. And it got to the point where I, I hadn't worn these for three years, but I was, I was holding on to them because of the memory that I used to wear them all the time. And literally the other day, I just put them into a donation bin and thought like, I don't need them. Do you know what I mean? And it was, it was those kinds of things that, once you do go through that process, you, yeah. you still let go of things. But mm. That makes me think of in Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Something that really stuck with me in that book was this idea that you should thank your belongings for their service and then rehome them and find a new place for them. And when I first heard that, I thought, you know, like, that sounds so bizarre. I'm not going to thank my jeans for the times that I wore them. But it sort of kind of, it stuck with me and I kept thinking about it and I found it really, it was, it was a really helpful concept when it came to the sentimental things Mm -hmm. like those boots you talk about, you know, it's, thank you. Like I wore you a few times and I really loved you. And right now I don't have a place for you in my life. And I want to give you to somebody who does Mm -hmm. that can really take care of you. And we actually even sort of took that approach with our house when we just sold our house and we were explaining to our son, who's three and a half, sort of the moving process and trying to help him grasp it. I was trying to explain it. And it sort of came out as this idea that 
you know, a house is never really truly ours. We don't keep it forever. Mm. We just use it for a short period of time. Even if we own it, we're still just using it. And then we're going to pass it along to someone else. And that's really the same with all of our stuff. Like 99% of all the things that we own are not going to be things that are going to be buried with us. They're going to leave us at some time. So the things that are sentimental, it's, are we going to get rid of them now? Are we going to get rid of them later? Or is there someone else that could be using these things in the meantime, if we're not? Yeah, most definitely. And I also find that going through this process and letting go of things and letting go of some of some hard things as well. And like, when you think about it, you go, really, it was that hard. It was a pair of boots, but everyone has their own kind of pair of boots in their life, if you know yes. what I mean. But letting go of that stuff. Now, the big thing that I'm, that, that I love is I don't really want to buy any more stuff. Cause I'm like, I don't want to have to let go of that in the future. So I really only now I, I, I buy very little or when I do, I, I think about it so much and I, I have this, um, a little folder in Evernote called wishlist and it, and I, if I want to buy something, I've got to write it in there and it's got to be there for 30 days before I actually buy the product. So I don't have any impulse purchase and then go, ah, oh, man, I didn't really need this. Yes. And I've done the same thing. I gave up Amazon as my New Year's resolution this year because I found that that was something in the States. It's just literally I could order something and it, like at eight o'clock at night and it would be on my doorstep by five o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it was just that immediate gratification. It was so easy to get things. I was found that I was ordering things that I really didn't need. And I could have found other things to fill those spots that I was buying those things for, but it was so easy and convenient that I was buying them anyways. So getting rid of Amazon really made me slow down and have to be more purposeful about buying. And I think, and it kind of makes me wonder how often other people have that with online shopping experience and the convenience of it these days. Uh, it is just too convenient sometimes. And, and I think, as you said there, you know, kind of being deliberate about those choices, but, um, as a parent, we're all too aware of the clutter that comes with kids as well. You know, they seem to be so magnetic to clutter, you know, the toys, the books, and just the mess in general. But you actually have a toy detox program, which I think is unreal. So can you talk me through that a little bit? But, um, and how your family has changed um, by limiting the toys, but also more importantly, the changes that you've seen in your kids by having fewer toys. Sure. So I have a PhD in child development and it was, it's always been a topic that's been near and dear to my heart. Since my son was born, I gave a lot of thought to choosing toys because in the field of child development, we know that kids learn through play and toys are their learning materials. So I knew that I wanted to give him the best learning materials, the best toys. So I was really conscious about choosing toys that were going to meet educational and developmental needs. And I, so I did that really well, but the problem was that I was doing that too often. <laughs> and I ended up with lots and lots of educational quote unquote toys that I didn't necessarily need. And it became a little overwhelming. So we did a big slim down on the toys and that's what I cover in the toy detox is really how to do it because it can be pretty overwhelming for parents to know what do I keep? What do I let go? What are the best toys to add to my home that are going to be useful in many different ways for a long period of time? And that is really what's at the core of the toy detox is how do you choose a toy that's going to 
not only be of interest to many different kids of different genders, different ages, different interests, but also something that's going to stick with them and that they can use in different ways for years and years to come. So I, there, one of the big concepts in the toy detox that I talk about is choosing between open toys and closed toys. So an example of an open toy would be a kitchen set. So it's a toy that kids can make breakfast or dinner or they could grill or they could do a whole variety of different pretend play scenarios with a kitchen set. Another example would be scarves. So my kids have the best time with scarves. They can make them into capes or dresses or hats or whatever you could possibly dream up. So open toys can be used, like I said, by lots of different kids in lots of different ways over a long period of time. And then there are closed toys. And closed toys are things that can be mastered or things that can be completed. So a puzzle would be an example of a closed toy. And while it does have a lot of educational value, once you do the puzzle and you complete it, you're done and you're moving on to the next toy. So when you have a lot of closed toys, they're completed and then you're moving on to the next thing. So it do- they don't tend to keep kids as busy for as long. And they also don't evoke as much imagination and creativity either. That's a, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's really interesting. I've never looked at toys like that, but w- when you say it, it's so true. The those closed toys, they just have a like a very short shelf life. They do, yeah, and but they're not without value. There's definitely a lot of value to something like a puzzle or a shape sorter or that sort of thing. Um, but if you have too many of them, you'll find that your kids are not going to play for as long of periods, periods of time, and they probably won't play as independently as well either. So trying to find that balance, and I usually recommend aiming for somewhere around 75% open toys to 25% closed toys. So really focusing on building up your inventory of open toys instead of trying to buy something like puzzles. And I keep going back to puzzles, which I don't really like too, because like I said, that they are really great toys for building cognitive skills and that sort of thing. Um, But the thing about puzzles, if you look at like baby puzzles, babies can do a puzzle and figure it out in a month and then they need a more complex one. And then two months later, they need another one and then they just get harder and harder. So you might need to buy three or four different puzzles in a year just to keep a kid's needs met in those ways. So closed toys, kids tend to grow out of a lot faster and then they need to be replaced and replenished. So that can be more clutter because then you want to stick them in the closet and save them for the next kid. Yeah, it's uh, it's so true. We were saving so many things for the next kid. Um, We're at that point now where um, unfortunately we won't be able to have a a second child, but that's a, that's a whole nother conversation. I'm sorry to hear that. And um, so, so we've, you know, you hold on to this stuff for years, as you were kind of saying, years and years and years. Um, and then it's like that was one of the, uh, the, you know, another kind of hard one to let go of. But we kind of let go of a lot of the, the early clothes and, and the toys and things mm-hmm. like that. But do you do you rotate toys or do you just have a small amount of toys? And, and once they grow out of that, you know, you donate and move on. You know, I'm hesitant to say that I rotate toys because I think when people talk about toy rotation, like if you Google toy rotation or you look it up on Pinterest, there's all these elaborate plans about how you have four different bins of toys and every week you pull out a new bin and you switch it out for the old bin. And honestly, I tried that and it just, I just wasn't diligent enough for it. I ended up leaving the same toys out for two months at a time. So I just, I thought an organized system of switching toys in and out wasn't something that worked for my family. 
So I do have some toys that I'll pull in and out and I put them in a closet, but it's never in a time-based fashion. It might be in a way where my kids have grown up a little bit and I think that their interests or their developmental levels might be better for one thing or another, or maybe I'm thinking that they need something fresh because they haven't had any new items in the mix-up. So I do move toys in and out, but I don't do it in any sort of systematic fashion. And changing tacks here a little bit, I know that when we – a simplifying a, a family we can we can talk about the clutter and the activities and, and things like that. But I, I want to talk about discipline here because it's it's a really interesting battle for me. On one hand, I want to give our daughter Andy the freedom to push the boundaries and learn from her mistakes. But then on the other hand, I, I really want her to understand that she's part of a family unit and that there are certain things that we need to do and, and certain ways that we, we need to behave. And Sometimes when things happen, afterwards I think, Mike, you know, maybe you could have handled that one a little bit better. And like, was Andy really doing something wrong or did reality just not play out the way that I had intended it to play out? And that's what was really frustrating me. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I can be quite controlling because I, I, I need to get things done. And, and I know when I'm relaxed, things are more relaxed, but there are just some mornings when like the shoe comes off for like the 10th time to fix the sock. I don't know whether your boy's at that age yet, <laughs> yeah. but it's just, it's just painful or, or we need to go to the toilet, you know, for the fourth time, just as we're about to walk out the door. And I, I, I feel like my head is just going to explode, but like, how do you tackle discipline in your home? Well, I, I have a little bit of an advantage because with my educational background, I also have done a lot of consulting and coaching with families in behavior challenges. So I, I feel like I have a little bit of a head start in this and I do have some strategies that work really well with my kids and have worked really well for other families too. I actually have a, a five-day mini course if you go to simplefamilies.com and you click get started that will put you into the, the free five-day mini course. And One of the things that works so well for me, and I've heard back from a lot of my audience that it's also also helpful for them, is something that I call the first-then principle. And for for some reason as parents, we tend to, when we're trying to get our kids to cooperate, we tend to resort to a lot of empty threats. So when we want them to do something, we say, you know what, if you don't go potty, you're not going to get to go to the park. So we're sort of threatening, like, does that sound familiar, Mike? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The potty thing, for some reason, it just like kind of like gets under your skin because it's like you got to do it anyways. Like, why can't you just do it? (laughs) (laughs) So we have this tendency to do to make empty threats, and the reality is like, are you really going to keep your kid home because they didn't go potty? Like, no, you're going to wait for them to go potty, and you're then you're going to go to the park. So it's empty in the sense that you're probably not going to follow through with whatever the threat was. But even if the threat wasn't empty, say you would, would in fact cancel the trip to the park. When we threaten kids to, or punish them to get them to cooperate, it rarely works. And if it does work, it sometimes will work in the moment, but it doesn't have this long-term effect. So instead, I encourage families to use the first then principle. So instead of saying, if you don't go potty, you're not going to go to the park, switching it around and saying, First go potty, and then we're going to get to go to the park. So just those small, small changes in words, flip it around from being a punishment or a threat to motivation. So you know that she wants to go to the park. So you're now using 
the park as motivation rather than using taking it away as a threat. Does that make sense? Yeah, most definitely. That's so simple, but so, so good. It is so effective. And one of the biggest reasons I think that it's effective is that when you say those words, your intonation and your demeanor is completely different. If you listen to how I say it, you know, if you don't go to the potty, you're not going to the park versus first we're going to go to the potty and then get to go to the park. Mm. So this positive attitude that you have and the excitement that you're conveying is transferred onto your child. So they're motivated and they're happy about going to the bathroom rather than feeling like they're being pressured and you're getting into a power struggle and you're going to punish them if they don't go to the park. So you have to try and report, try and report back to me, Mike, and let me know how it goes. I will do. I think, I think Skype is just playing up with me here. But I will definitely report back on that because I think it's that sounds like a really great idea, and and I loved how you, how it does change your own attitude. You know, that it's one's a negative way and one's a positive way, and you know I've definitely learned that that Andy, our daughter, she definitely reacts more when you know the household is is a positive household. Yeah, and you know it's it's just it our demeanor and our stress it just impacts kids so much. I was having lunch with a friend last week, and she was telling me how her daughter, who's four, is pretty sassy. And I, and I said to her, and trying to be in a and kind of an unassuming way, I said, "Well, are you sassy to her?" And she's like, "Well, maybe." Mm. <laughs> and I and I think that that we don't even know sometimes. Like when our kids sort of get a little bit of a mouth or a little bit of attitude with us, our inclination is to react back with that attitude or react back with that sassiness that they're giving to us. When really we need to model what we want to see. So if our kids give us attitude, then we need to model kindness and empathy so that they can see that works. They can see what Mm -hmm. that sounds like. So yeah, you're right. Just providing that calm atmosphere for our kids is so impactful. Yeah, most definitely. And it's, uh, I think sometimes when we, we get that attitude, often it's just a mirror reflecting back at us. Yes, it is. It's so funny because my husband has been gone for the past several weeks and he has visited us on a couple weekends, but for the most part, he hasn't been here. And my son has just really struggled with him being gone. And it's not struggle in a way where he says, I miss, I miss Papa all the time or anything like that. But it's just the, the behavior changes that I've noticed in him. And so when my husband does come back, he gives my husband a really hard time. And this weekend, my husband was here and he was just giving him uh, the, the ring around. And when my husband was trying to get him ready for bed and he and my husband was so frustrated. He's like, I just am so angry and I'm so frustrated. And I was like, you know what? Like he feels the exact same way about you. Like whenever you're feeling those strong emotions about your child, like flip the mirror around and they are feeling those exact emotions towards you. So like if you want to scream and use profanity or whatever you're feeling in your head, like you want to do, your kids want to do the same thing. And they actually might be doing this, doing what you're thinking, those very same things, because they don't have the frustration tolerance that we do. So if you've ever had the urge, like, oh, I just want to slap my kid, they're probably thinking like, oh, I just want to slap my mom, or I just Mm. want to slap my dad is probably what's going through their mind. And in some instances, like I said, because they don't have that frustration tolerance, they act on it, and they will, in fact, slap. Yeah. And um, so changing, changing tax a little bit here, to meal times because it can always be an interesting time of the day and we've been very fortunate with Andy that she will try pretty much anything she's really good like that and and more times than not she she likes most foods but you recently wrote an article titled 
exactly how I feed my kids. And then you followed it up with a uh, podcast episode where you were answering many of the questions from your readers. Firstly, great article, and I will link to that and the podcast episode in the show notes at liveimmediately.com. But one of the things that, that really stood out for me was the role that you play as a parent when it comes to food, that it's your job to provide the healthy food, the time that the food will be served and the location that the food will be served. But then it's the child's responsibility to decide if they will eat the food and how much of the food that they will eat. Can you talk to me about this for a little? Because I think it was, it was fascinating. Sure. So I think uh, the, the hard, the struggle that I found in working with parents and coaching families is that we just want to do everything and we want to be everything and we want to fix everything. And as a result, we tend to do too much. Mm. And this particularly plays a part in feeding. And we want our kids to eat healthy. And we know we see all these things about what a kid should eat and what a kid's diet should consist of. And we know exactly what we should feed our kids. But how to get them to eat those foods is sort of the great mystery in life. Um, So it's Th- that sort of miss the those two things don't add up. So we know what we're supposed to feed them, but it's not always easy to get them to eat that. So we sometimes we'll take we'll do too much. You know, we'll start to pressure kids and encourage kids and bribe kids and do all sorts of things. When the reality is, the research shows us that the best thing we can do to get kids to eat well is to just sit back and eat our own food and mind our own business and let them decide if they're going to eat their food rather than trying to coach them through it and encourage them and to bribe them and reward them. It's just really to do our own thing. And it's funny because I tell parents that I'm like, just sit back, have your glass of wine, whatever it is you're going to do, and just don't pay too much attention to what your kids are, what, how much they're eating, or if you think they might be hungry at any given moment, because this is their own path that they're walking, they're eating in their own and that sort of thing as they grow. And it really needs to be theirs. And it's not something that we can control. So like you said, we pick the food and we offer it to them and they might not be hungry. So they might not eat. And the reality is they're going to eat really well at the next meal. So we don't ever pressure our kids to eat things that they're not eating on their plate. It's funny. I actually don't even pay attention when my kids don't eat. And that's sort of been an art because I have sort of a type A personality. So I like to track a lot of things and I really have to, I, I, from the time I started feeding my first son solids was actually sat on the opposite side of the table so that I couldn't have my hands in there and I couldn't be doing too much and I've really felt like I've by removing myself from the process and just really providing the food that I've let my kids find their own way with it. And the outcome is that they're both really good eaters and they're really happy at mealtime. And research does show us that the better the environment, the more positive the environment is during mealtime, the better kids eat. So when they're happy and we're talking just about family stuff or about our days, kids are eating better rather than we're talking about, oh, do you like that? How's that taste? Do you want more? Are you hungry? Why aren't you eating? Did you take two bites? Did you take three bites? So we try not to talk about the food. We try to just talk about other stuff in life. It's a more natural eating environment. Like I would sort of a conversation I would have with my husband if I was out to dinner, I wouldn't be sort of harassing him about what he was eating all the time. You know, I would just be talking to him about other stuff. And I guess it's also important to note that, you know, there are the three meals, you've obviously got breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then like the two snacks either side from that. So when we talk about, you know, if a kid's not hungry, it doesn't mean that if they get hungry in 30 minutes, they get a snack. They learn to wait till the next 
the next meal time. And that's, I guess, you know, a, a big point in there. Instead of letting the kids just kind of graze all day, it's, it's really, you know, this is when we eat and then this is when we eat and then this is when we eat. Yes. And I was very careful about wording the title of this article and I called it exactly how I feed my kids because exactly how I feed my kids is not the right way for anybody else. This is just how I do it. And feeding young children was the topic of my dissertation. So there is a lot of research that guides the way that I do things, but a lot of the things that I do are some of the things that just work for my family. So there are some families that have kids who graze all day long and they're totally fine with that and that works for them. For me, I knew a couple things when, when my kids were starting to eat food. I knew that I wanted them to eat their meals at a table and their snacks at a table. I didn't want them carrying food around the house. Um, I'm just not a big fan of ants and cleaning up all over and that sort of thing. So I wanted them to eat at the table and I didn't want them to be snacking all day long because I'm kind of a snacker and I've sort of had this habit throughout my life that I've had to break. So I knew that I wanted to set them up for success. So I feed my kids three meals a day and two snacks and the meals they can eat as much as they want. And the snacks are limited in size. So if I let them eat as much snack as they wanted, they would often fill up on snacks and not be hungry for the next meal. So snacks tend to be smaller than meals because we consume most of our food during meal times. Um, but like I said, that's what works for my family and it's not a hard, fast rule for others. And you, you spoke there about, you know, sitting on the opposite side of the table and kind of taking yourself out of the equation a little bit. There was another line that you wrote in a different article um, that really resonated with me. And it was, and I quote, my job is to kiss the boo-boos, not prevent them. And it, you were kind of talking about hovering and, and things like that. And it's, it's so true because I think that as parents, we, we obviously love our kids and we want to protect them. And we, we sometimes wrap them up in this world of cotton wool. So, so nothing can, can happen to them. But then we're not allowing those, as you say, boo-boos to happen and, and then learn from them, those mistakes. How have you found, I guess, taking yourself out of the equation when it comes to your parenting style? Like how, how did that really change the way that your, your child developed? So I think it's very empowering when we do that. When we step away and we don't hover, kids feel competent and they feel capable. So when we're standing over their shoulders, <laughs> I remember this story because after I had my first child, I was 30 years old and my mom came to visit a couple weeks after he was born and she stayed with us. And I was cutting an apple and she was standing over my shoulder and she sort of very gently said to me, do you want me to cut that for you? <laughs> and it kind of brought up in my life, she never really wanted me to use knives. And even as an adult, it still made her a little bit nervous. And this idea, but and the, the, the result has been that I'm actually not a very capable knife user. And I'm pretty nervous when I use knives. And I think that when we give our kids this confidence, and we say like, you got this, you can do this, they believe in themselves, and they actually end up doing a lot better as a result of it. And we avoid sort of this putting that doubt in their minds, right? So if mm -hmm. it's like climbing up the highest slide and getting to the top, if we're like standing there hovering over them every step of the way, we're sort of telling them without saying anything at all, we're telling them, I think you're going to fall mm -hmm. instead of standing back and saying, I think you got this. So, and it's, I mean, and I know personally, I, I really value self-affirmation. So the talking to myself positively in my head, I think has had such a great impact on my life. And 
on the things that I've been able to accomplish. And I want my kids to be talking to themselves in their heads and saying like, you got this, you got this, you can do this. And I think that that can be done when we really give our kids the space to do things on their own. And I think it goes back to what we were saying before that sometimes, you know, you, you talk about that, that, that positive affirmation there, that when we're saying, no, don't do that, don't do that, be careful, be careful, we're not realizing, but as, as you said, they're sponges and they're taking that in. So then everything in life, they're like, is this going to hurt me? I better not do that. Something might go wrong here. You know, they're picking up on that and they're learning from that. You're exactly right. And it's, it's not just kids, it's adults too. I tend to be kind of a nervous driver. I got into a car accident a couple of years ago and sort of have been a little scared ever since. And my, and when I drive with my husband in the car, I tend to grip the wheel and be pretty nervous. And because I know that he's watching and he's made comments like, Oh, like you're slamming on the brakes or you're hesitating or different sort of things about my driving. And one day I was like, you know, can you, can you give me some affirmations? Can you say to me like, you got this. You're a great driver. And he started doing that. And I relaxed so much when I was driving. And now I do it to myself. When I get in the car, if I'm going somewhere new, I, I do this positive self-talk where I mm -hmm. say to myself, like, you got this. You're a good driver. You're capable. You're going to be fine. And it has literally transformed the way that I drive. I'm a much better and more competent, confident driver as a result of it. And it's such a simple... It's a simple thing to do. You know what I mean? It takes, what, 30 seconds to, to say those positive things to ourselves before, you know, something that we might be nervous about. But we've, we've spoken today about some great ways to, to simplify families. And, and I guess what I want to know is what are some of the areas of your family or household that you find challenging to simplify or slow down? Hmm. That's a good question. So I think that the biggest challenge for me is balancing my role as a mother and as a working individual. And I do work from home. And that's just a huge challenge for me because I do want to be there all the time with my kids. And I also want to be working and building my career as well. And that sort of battle, and I know that's a big struggle for moms, it's this sort of you want to have a career, but you also want to be there every single minute with your kids. I think sort of simplifying that and being able to sort of divide those two and find a balance is incredibly difficult. And I haven't been able to reconcile that. The result is that I end up working from home and not being nearly as productive as I would like to be most of the time because I'm just so afraid of missing out on something with my kids. So I think finding that family work balance has been the biggest the biggest struggle for me as i'm simplifying mm. i can um i can second that one it's uh it's it is so hard to find that balance between spending that time with your kids and also kind of going off and and creating things that you you want to kind of put out into the world but today i'm i'm really conscious of your time right now because i know it's it's quite late over there at the moment um but i have one final question for you and it's one that i do ask all my guests on the podcast and that's if you could please describe your perfect day my perfect day well i would wake up before my kids and i would do some yoga probably for about 45 minutes or an hour and then i would go and i'd wake make breakfast and they would still be sleeping and then they would get up 
all in a great mood and ready to start the day. And I'd spend a few hours with them in the morning and then I would have a few hours to work in the afternoon and a few hours. Well, I'll say if sometimes it feels like I need a few hours to prepare dinner. So I would have an easy, <laughs> I would have a fridge, a fridge full of groceries to prepare very simple meals. Um, and then I would have my kids help me make the meals and, um, then have my husband come home. He works more of a regular nine to five mm-hmm. and, um, spend at least an hour or two with the kids in the evening. Cause sometimes he does work long hours. So I think, yeah, having that balance in the day where I have time with my kids and then time to accomplish my work goals and then time to spend with my husband and the kids all as one would be really ideal in my perfect world. Always work. It's a journey, always working towards that. Yeah, happy days. It sounds like a good day. It really does. But I, I want to thank you so much today for your time and, and your wisdom and, and all the work that you do. And, and I will definitely be linking to a lot of the stuff in the pod, um, in the show notes. But if people do want to reach out to you and say g'day or, or learn a little bit more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. The best way to reach me is by email. And that's my first name, Danae, D-E-N-A-Y-E at simplefamilies.com. You can also follow us on the Facebook page or I have a large Facebook group too that is super active and it's a great place to meet other like-minded families interested in simple living. Um, And I'm also on Instagram as well. So you can catch me kind of anywhere you're looking. Beautiful. Well, I will link to all of those at the show notes at liveimmediately.com. But uh, do you have any final comments? Is there anything that I've left out before we go? Uh, Nothing really striking me, but thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Uh, More than welcome. It's been um, really lovely chatting to you. So thanks once again, Danae. And everybody listening, thank you for listening. And until next time, have fun and live immediately. That was another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. The original Live Immediately theme music is by the multi-talented Timothy McPhee. You can check out his music at firekites.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed the show, had some fun, and maybe even learned something, then make sure you subscribe via iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave a rating and a review? You know it's going to make my day. Thanks for stopping by and giving me some of your time today. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, have fun and live immediately.